We open the sacred scriptures to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. Read together the portion of this chapter which records the angel Gabriel's announcement of the birth of Christ to Mary. So we begin our reading at verse 26. We will read through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also hath conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord... Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far we read in the word of God. We turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 14. Which explains the history and the teaching of the passage which we have just read. Focusing on the miracle of all miracles. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 14 begins with question 35. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived, 
and brought forth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism is at present expounding to us the central truths of the Christian faith, the main teachings of the Bible, which the church in ancient times summarized in what we have as the Apostles' Creed. Recently, we have completed our consideration of the second article of the Apostolic Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ. His only begotten Son, our Lord. And we have looked at the meaning of each of those important names that the Bible gives to our Savior Jesus Christ. Now with Lord's Day 14, we consider the third article of the Apostles' Creed. The meaning of the words, who, that is Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Catechism is now going to explain to us the saving work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for God's elect people. And the Catechism begins, as the Apostolic Creed does, with the beginning of our Lord's work in time and history, with His lowly birth. The next several articles of the Apostles' Creed explain how Jesus accomplishes our salvation And how he applies the benefits which he earned for us. How he applies them to us. A couple of important terms to remember from theology. Perhaps reaching back to the days when we were in essentials of reformed doctrine class. For some of us that was more recent than others. But you will recall the important theological terms. State of humiliation and state of exaltation. Those two terms describe the two main Parts of Jesus' life and ministry. His state of exaltation was Jesus' earthly life and ministry from the time of his birth to his death on the cross. It is called the state of humiliation because in his earthly life and ministry, Jesus humbled himself. He assumed our guilt and bore the penalty for our guilt in order to deliver us from sin and earn for us the blessings of salvation. Jesus' state of exaltation is the next phase of his ministry on our behalf, beginning with his resurrection. His state of exaltation is Jesus' glorification. He arises from the dead and he ascends into heaven and there in heaven he pours out the blessings that he obtained for us in the state of humiliation. And so in Lord's Days 14, 15, and 16, the Catechism is going to explain the main stages of Jesus' humiliation. His lowly birth, His lifelong suffering, His death on the cross, and His burial. And then in Lord's Days 17 through 19, the Catechism will explain the different stages of our Lord's exaltation. This morning we begin the state of humiliation with The miracle of all miracles, the wonder of wonders that is the incarnation of the Son of God. A truth that is at the heart of the good tidings of great joy that is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. A truth which we hear time and time again, and yet it is a truth the wonder of which should never wear off. A marvel that should prompt us to praise and thank our God 
for the gift of Jesus Christ. So let's consider the Bible's teaching on the incarnation of Christ. Our theme is the marvel of the incarnation. We will first look at the marvelous miracle itself, what it was. Secondly, the marvelous manner in which God accomplished this miracle. And then finally, we will look at the marvelous prophet of the incarnation of Christ for us, his people. What is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The Catechism in question and answer 35 describes, it really defines for us what this marvelous miracle is. Answer 35, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Let's pull apart those words. And understand this biblical teaching. Starting with who. When we speak about the incarnation. Who is incarnate? The text. Or rather the catechism makes clear. God's eternal son. That is the second person of the trinity. God the son. Jesus Christ. The only begotten son of God. Whom we learned about in Lord's Day 13. Be clear on that. When we speak about the incarnation, God becoming man, we are not speaking of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, or the third person of the Trinity, God the Son. Though the incarnation was accomplished by the work of the triune God, it is the second person, the Son of God, who becomes incarnate, who becomes man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. What? Was this incarnation. That big theological word incarnation. Has a very simple meaning. Perhaps you children this morning are wondering what that big word incarnation means. It simply means being made flesh. Becoming flesh. Incarnation. Into flesh. And this word describes the marvelous miracle whereby God the Son, Jesus, took upon himself or assumed to himself, united to himself, our human nature. And now that term human nature simply refers to everything that belongs to being a human being. All that goes into our humanity. Our human nature consists of two fundamental parts. Our physical part and our spiritual part. Our body and our soul. And so the incarnation is the wonder whereby the Son of God took to himself a human body and a human soul. All the parts of that human body. A complete human body. And all that belongs to a human soul. The spiritual life of a human being. The faculties and powers of that soul. Consciousness. Emotion and all of the rest. To put it very simply. The incarnation is the wonder of God. In which Jesus Christ becomes fully and completely and really human. So much so that Jesus Christ is as human as you are. Now, 
we want to understand that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God the Son taking upon Himself our human nature so that He became truly and fully man, that does not mean that there was some change in His divine nature. He is, as the Catechism says, the eternal God. The second person of the Trinity is the eternal God. And now notice this in the first line. And continueth true and eternal God. When we think about the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ taking on our flesh, we mustn't think about it this way. It's not God changing into man in such a way that he lays aside his Godhead, sets aside his divinity, and now becomes a human being. No, the wonder of the incarnation is God the Son becoming fully man, but losing nothing of his divinity, such that he is truly and fully God, and also truly and fully human. We can put it this way, Jesus became man, but Jesus stayed as much God as he ever was. And he must, because as the second person of the Trinity, he is the I am that I am. The unchanging and eternal God. The divine nature cannot change. The divine nature cannot be put off. The divine nature cannot be reduced or diminished in any way whatsoever. Now when we turn to that beautiful passage of Philippians 2, which speaks about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, making Himself of no reputation, emptying Himself, we mustn't interpret that as if Jesus set aside His divinity. That's impossible. But what Philippians 2 sets before us is the wonder of Jesus' state of humiliation. That Jesus, who is and continues to be eternal God, When he took upon himself our human nature and became man, he set aside his divine glory, his divine privileges, his divine honors. And his divinity, which remains as real as it ever was, is veiled behind the humanity that he assumed to himself. Our Belgic Confession in Article 19 puts it this way, very beautifully. Let me read A sentence from Belgic Confession, Article 19. Speaking of the incarnation of Jesus, it says, The Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. When God the Son took upon Himself our human nature so that He became man. His real, unchanging divinity was hidden, you might say, behind the human flesh that He assumed, but it was still there. And when you read the Gospel accounts, you see that divinity of Jesus Christ flash through the veil of His human nature from time to time. So that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To put it very simply, God the Son, who remains eternal God, in a miracle that we cannot wrap our minds around, took upon Himself our human nature, body and soul, so that He became truly and fully human. Now, to dig a little bit deeper into this, Let's ask the question, how exactly did this incarnation of Jesus Christ work? How is it that God the Son took to Himself our human nature? And as said a moment ago, this is a miracle. 
It is a wonder work of the Almighty God, which is something we can never fully wrap our small, limited human minds around. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a wonder that's on the same level as the Trinity. That's another wonder that the Scriptures reveal to us that we cannot fully understand. But the fact that we can't fully understand it shouldn't lead us to question it. We shouldn't expect to be able to fully understand God. He is so much greater than us. He is infinite. When we run into these mysteries, these wonders of the Scriptures, the proper response is simply to bend the knee and bow and worship this God who is so great. So it is with the Incarnation. And yet, the Scriptures tell us enough that we can have a basic understanding of how the Incarnation works. At the Incarnation, there was accomplished by the power of God a personal union of the natures of Jesus Christ. Let's explain that a minute. A personal union of the divine nature of Christ with the human nature of Christ that He assumed. And that union is in the one person of Jesus Christ. And that's important. Jesus is not two people. He's not a divine person and a human person. The incarnation is not Jesus assuming a human person to himself such that he becomes a divine person and a human person. No, Jesus is one person. And he must be one person. If he is two people, we don't have a savior. For Jesus to be our Savior, He must be one person, yet fully God and fully human. And that's accomplished through the personal union of His divine and human natures in His one person. Again, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And as the second person of the Trinity, He has, He participates in the one divine nature, the divine essence, all that belongs to being God. He is co-essential with the Father and with the Spirit. He equally shares all of the attributes of the divine being. The one person of Jesus Christ has the divine nature. But now at the incarnation, the one person of Jesus Christ takes our human nature and unites it to his divine nature. So that these two natures are inseparably united in his one person. But while they are inseparably united, they are not mixed and mingled together to become a a third thing, a kind of hybrid nature. They are united, but each nature retains its own distinct and proper qualities. If they were mixed together, Jesus would become something that's neither fully God and neither fully human. By the union of the two natures in his one person, he is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully human, yet one person. And now, this fits with what we read in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see Jesus as a real human being. And yet, we see flashes of that divine nature that's behind the veil of His humanity. And because of the union of His two natures in His one person, the divine nature at times exercises a kind of influence upon His human nature. So for example, the well-known story of Jesus calming the sea, calming the Sea of Galilee. Recall that story to memory. 
as that story begins, we find Jesus sleeping in the boat. In his human nature, he was tired. He became exhausted from his work of preaching and teaching and performing miracles by his divine power, by the way. In his human nature, he was tired and so he was sleeping. And yet when his disciples wake him up and set before him the peril that they faced as the storm raged around them and threatened to sink their boat, Jesus stands up and he goes to the side of the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves and by his divine power he calms the storm. There you see both of his natures in their integrity retaining their own properties, not mixed together, but both united in his one person. Or think farther back to when Jesus was 12 years old. The one story that we have of his childhood recorded at the end of Luke 2. Where you find Jesus in the temple disputing with and asking questions of the doctors of the law. There you see a child who has knowledge beyond his years. There's a flash of his divinity there. And yet Jesus is a real child who had to learn, who had to study, who had to ask questions. Humanity. Divinity, united in his one person. Now, as that doctrine has been explained, it only brings forth a multitude of further questions, does it not? But we can't answer all of those questions. That's as far as we can go. We run up against that wall of incomprehensibility, and we bend the knee and we worship our God who is so great, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel. At this miracle of the incarnation. Well to finish up the first point. We've looked at what the incarnation is. Now briefly we want to look at the result of this marvelous miracle of God. And answer 35 states the result of the incarnation in the very last line. Jesus assumed our human nature so that he might be like Unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And this is what is so beautiful and personal about the incarnation. The incarnation makes the eternal Son of God our brother. The incarnation brings the eternal Son of God into this intimate relationship with you and me and all of God's elect people. The incarnation makes him our brother because at the incarnation, God the Son willingly takes our human nature upon himself and becomes human. How marvelous a miracle. God the Son, who is the Word by whom all things were made, he assumes created flesh and becomes a creature in order that he might draw near close to us and be our brother and take us for his brethren and through his saving work gather to God the Father a spiritual family an elect people what a marvel the incarnation is God the Son who as God is as unlike us as any you can never transcend That chasm of difference that exists between God the creator and finite creatures. 
We can never bridge that chasm. But the wonder of the incarnation is that God the Son bridges that chasm. He stoops this low that He comes down to us and becomes one of us to be our brother, to be our Savior, so that we can be adopted into the family of God. And there's the connection to Lord's Day 13. The only begotten Son of God became incarnate. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He took flesh. So that we creatures of flesh. Might become adopted sons and daughters of the eternal God. He became one of us. Just like us. Sin accepted. The one difference. No sin. As the scriptures say, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning that when Jesus assumed our human nature, he didn't assume a nature that was like Adam's nature before Adam's fall. That is, a nature that was not at all affected by any of the consequences of sin. But when Jesus assumed our human nature, it was a nature that was without sin, and yet it was a nature still subject to the effects of sin. That's why Jesus got tired. That's why Jesus got sick. That's why Jesus' body could be injured. He assumed a human nature just like ours in the condition of our nature in the midst of this world. With this one exception, his nature was completely holy. There was no sin. There was no depravity. Sinless human nature. We'll talk about that a little more later. So see what a wonder the incarnation is. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus Christ stands at the heart of God's covenant of grace. Covenant, which is that gracious relationship of love, friendship, and fellowship that God establishes with His people through Jesus Christ. The incarnation stands at the heart of it. And the incarnation is an an essential part of the realization of God's covenant. How so? Because the incarnation is how God brings covenant fellowship to its highest level of realization and glory. By the incarnation, God the Son becomes Emmanuel. God with us in the most intimate way. He bridges that chasm between creator and creature. Between God and human beings. He comes down. He becomes one of us. He draws as close as is possible to us in order that He might draw us as close as is possible to God. The opening chapter of John chapter 1 says that no man hath seen God at any time because the one true God is essentially invisible. He cannot be seen with the eyes of the flesh. But Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Through the incarnation, the invisible God becomes visible. Through the incarnation, we see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the face of the incarnate Christ is the window into the heart of God. Through Jesus, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we are given to know God like we never could know Him before. The incarnation, you can say, is the center of everlasting life. 
It's the beating heart of heaven. How so? Think of the last chapters of Revelation where we're taught that there will be no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Because God's tabernacle will be with men. And how will God's tabernacle be with men? The incarnate Christ, who is the temple of God, who is God with us. The center of heavenly life is Jesus Christ Himself, who is God in our flesh, who remains forever both fully God and fully man, and through Him in heaven, we shall enjoy the most intimate communion and fellowship with God. Through the incarnate Christ, the invisible God made visible. The face of the eternal God revealing the heart of our Father. The incarnation takes fellowship with God to the highest possible level. There's the everlasting significance of the miracle described in Luke 1. Well, now we come to the second thing we focus on in the sermon this morning, namely the marvelous manner. God accomplished this marvelous miracle of the incarnation in a marvelous manner. And the marvelous way in which God performed this miracle is the virgin conception and birth. The incarnation, God the Son, becomes fully human. And part of being fully human is that He lived a completely human life like the rest of us. Jesus was conceived and born Just like every other human child. And yet, Jesus was conceived and born like no other human child. Let's look at the likeness, the similarity. Jesus' conception and his birth were real human Conception and birth. The Son of God took upon Himself our human nature in the womb of His mother, the Virgin Mary. Like every single one of us, His body and His mind were knit together in His mother's womb. He also was fearfully and wonderfully made with respect to His human nature. His body... His mind started as an embryo. He grew and developed in utero. And Jesus was carried to term. His mother gave birth to him in the normal, the same way that every other child is born. When Mary held Jesus in her arms and laid the baby Jesus in the manger, that baby Jesus was a normal human baby just like all of us. When he was born, he was a certain number of inches long. He weighed a certain number of pounds. And as the years passed, he grew just like any other human child. He was a normal child, a normal baby. As he laid in the manger, crying, he did make. He had to be fed. Fed like any other baby. He had to be burped. He had to be changed. 
we often don't think about that. We bring it up because it stresses to us the real humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a baby, born a baby like any other. He grew up like any other, fully human. And yet, that baby in the manger was the Son of God. He was conceived and born like every other human child, and yet he was conceived and born like no other human child. Because his mother was a virgin. A virgin when she conceived him. That's clear from Luke chapter 1. Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement that she will bring forth a child. Her response is, how can this be? Because I know not a man. And this is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7 verse 14. Which said, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. She was a virgin when she conceived. There was no human father involved. Joseph would only be his legal and his adoptive human father. This is a wonder, a miracle of God. A virgin conceived and bore a son. Thus, while Jesus' conception and birth was in so many respects just like any other, in that crucial respect, it was unlike any other. A marvelous miracle was the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. A marvelous manner in which the incarnation took place. Now, that leads us then to the question, why did God accomplish the incarnation in this particular marvelous manner? Why did God accomplish the incarnation through a virgin conception and a virgin birth? We can break down and answer that question in three parts. First, we're going to ask, why Mary? Answer that. Secondly, why a virgin? And answer that question. And then finally, by whose power? Was this marvelous miracle accomplished? Why a virgin conception and birth? Let's start with why Mary? Why did God choose Mary to be the mother of his son? And the starting point for our answer to that question is simply it was God's eternal good pleasure. God chose Mary as one of his saints whom he had ordained to eternal life from before the foundation of the world. God chose in his good pleasure to confer upon her the supreme honor of being the mother of the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. That's why the angel Gabriel speaks about her finding favor in the sight of the Lord and calls her blessed among women. Indeed, blessed among the human race in that she is given the supreme honor of being the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why, rightly, our Belgic Confession in Article 19 refers to Mary as the Blessed Virgin. That's not Mariolatry. The Reformed faith recognizes the unique place that God ordained for Mary in the outworking of His purposes. God conferred a unique honor upon her. That's an amazing thing. And we can recognize that without falling into the Roman Catholic error of making her into an idol. God chose Mary to be the mother of the Christ. And God then formed Jesus' human nature 
out of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. And that's a very important point that we need to understand. The Catechism brings that to our attention. It says that the incarnation is this, the eternal Son of God took upon Him the very nature of man. But now this phrase, where did that nature of man come from? From what was it derived? Of, of, that is out of, drawn from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God fashioned the human nature of Jesus Christ. And that work of God was not creating something completely new, disconnected from Mary. But God fashioned the human nature of Jesus Christ, drawing from Mary's own human nature. The same way that when we are born, our human nature was fashioned by God from the human nature of our parents, so that we carry the genes of our parents. We have a similar personality to them, perhaps. We carry their traits. We have some of their characteristics. The same was true of Jesus. His personality might have been somewhat like Mary's. Jesus' human body carried Mary's genes. He had her traits. She was really his mother. And Jesus, according to his flesh, he received his flesh. It was drawn from Mary. He was really her son. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. It ensures that Jesus really is one of us. For Jesus to be one of us, for Jesus to be made like unto his brethren in all things, he must be organically connected to us. He must have a human nature that is shared by us that can be traced all the way back to the first father, Adam. If God just created something completely new in the chamber of Mary's womb, Jesus would not be one of us. He would be disconnected from us. But because God formed the human nature of Jesus Christ, drawing from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, Jesus is connected to us. He has the same human nature that we have. And another reason that it was important for Jesus to receive his human nature from his mother Mary is that this ensured that he was also in the line of David. Answer 35 points that out. That he might be of the true seed of David. In fulfillment of the scriptures. Think of 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 where God promised to David that the messianic king would proceed from David's own bowels. The Messiah would be in the lineage of David. Isaiah 11 verse 1 speaks of the coming Savior as a branch springing from the root of Jesse. To fulfill that word of God, that Christ the King would be of David's line, his flesh was drawn from his mother Mary, who was a descendant of David. Gabriel points that out in verse 32 of Luke 1, where he says that Jesus will sit upon the throne of his father David as the fulfillment of the kingdom of David. So that's the first question, the first part of the overarching question, why the virgin conception and birth? The first part of that question, why Mary? Now the second part of that question, why did Mary have to be a virgin? 
Why a virgin conception and birth? Why couldn't Jesus, our Savior, be the offspring of both Mary and Joseph? And there's a very important theological reason. In the words of Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord, period. Not from the Lord working with man. The coming of the Savior, therefore, must be a wonder of grace without any human contribution at all. Salvation is a human impossibility. Just as impossible as it is biologically for a virgin to conceive. The virgin conception and birth emphasizes that the coming of the Savior and therefore all of the work of salvation is of God alone is a marvelous miracle of grace which no human could ever bring about by his own power. A sentence from Belgic Confession 18. Jesus being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost without the means of man. The virgin conception and birth emphasizes no human can bring Jesus into the world. No man can bring salvation to fallen man. Only God by a miracle of Grace. Gabriel says in verse 37. For with God. Nothing. Shall be impossible. With man. Much is impossible. With God. Nothing is impossible. And Gabriel's words there. Are our answer to all of the modern scoffers. Who look at the doctrine of the virgin conception. Of Jesus Christ. And they laugh in their scientific age pride. And they shake their heads and they say. That's so silly. Virgins don't conceive. The Christian faith is foolish. And our simple, logical, biblical response is. Nothing is impossible with God. There's nothing more reasonable than that. A virgin conceived. By the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who moved upon the face of the waters when God created the worlds out of nothing. It is a small thing for the Spirit of God to cause a virgin to conceive. It is a small thing for the God who spoke and it was to cause a virgin to conceive. Let the scoffers scoff. In their scoffing, they only manifest the folly of their unbelief. Believers don't scoff. Believers bend the knee and worship God for the marvelous miracle of the incarnation and the marvelous manner in which God performed that miracle. And we then thank Him for our salvation through this Jesus Christ, which is a human impossibility, but which God has accomplished by His wisdom and His power. And that leads to the third thing. How was this marvelous manner of the incarnation accomplished? By whose power power was the virgin conception accomplished? Gabriel says it in Luke chapter 1. The Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee and the power of the highest shall be upon thee. It was through the operation of the Holy Spirit in Mary 
that the human nature of Jesus Christ was formed in her womb, drawn from her flesh and blood. It was by the operation of the Holy Spirit in the most marvelous and wonderful way that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, grew from an embryo to a fully developed baby and was born of the Virgin Mary. By the power of the Spirit. What a wonderful birth. Notice that the Catechism brings out one important thing to see about this. One more important thing. True and eternal God took upon Him the very nature of man. While the incarnation was accomplished by the Holy Spirit and His power, God the Son was active in this too. And an important application of that is this. From the beginning, our salvation was willed by Jesus Christ. Jesus was never forced into the incarnation, but from the beginning, the incarnation was Jesus' will. He Himself took our flesh upon Himself. He was willingly born. That's very different from all of us. None of us chose to be born. But Jesus chose to be born for you. And that's amazing. Because Jesus knew what he was going to be born unto. He was going to be born unto a life of suffering culminating in the cross. He was going to be born unto a life of suffering far greater than even Job's. And Job's suffering made him curse the day of his birth. He was born to taste death for you and me. And Jesus knowing full well what his earthly life would be, willingly took to himself our human nature so that he might be born, so that he might suffer, so that he might die, so that he might endure hell to deliver you. What a marvelous, marvelous miracle. Accomplished in a marvelous way, With an equally marvelous prophet. That's the last question and answer 36 in the catechism. What profit, that is what benefit, dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? In the catechism, though it could say so many things here, chooses especially two things. First part of the answer, that he is our mediator. That's the first benefit. Jesus' incarnation. His conception and birth enables Him to be our mediator, our Savior. Qualified and equipped to do the work of redemption. Of course, He was eternally ordained as our mediator. But at the incarnation, that eternal decree is realized in time. And by His birth, He begins undertaking that work of salvation. By His holy conception and nativity, God the Son becomes man. And He becomes man organically connected to us through receiving His nature from the Virgin Mary. And thus He's able to be the second Adam, our new head, our representative, who is equipped and qualified to bear our sins and deliver us from them. Just like us, except sin. And as the perfect man, the sinless one, he is able to lay down his life 
to save sinners. Then the last part of answer 36. That he is our mediator. And then this prophet, this benefit. And with his innocence and perfect holiness. Covers in the sight of God my sins. Wherein I was conceived and brought forth. The idea here isn't that Jesus' birth all by itself atoned for our sins. The idea is that Jesus, by his birth, entered into his life of suffering, culminating in his death, by which he accomplished the atonement for our sins, which covers our sins in the sight of God. But notice the beautiful contrast that answer 36 is drawing here between Jesus' birth and our birth. Jesus was born to rescue us from what we were born into. Jesus was born so that we might have a second birth. We're conceived and born in sin. We come into the world with original sin. That means we come into this world guilty for Adam's transgression. We come into this world with a totally depraved nature such that we are born spiritually dead under the eternal death sentence of the curse of God. That's how we are born. But Jesus' birth was very different. He was not conceived or born in sin. He was conceived and born without sin. So that he could take care of your sin and mine. And the innocence, the perfect holiness of his entire life. His life of obedience. That is the covering which he provides. Which covers your sins and mine. He died. For his people. And his blood wipes away our sins. He obeyed for his people. And his holiness covers our lack of holiness. So that now when God looks at you believing people of God. He doesn't see someone born in the filth of corruption. But he sees the innocence of the holy Christ. When Jesus looks at you. He doesn't, or when God looks at you. He doesn't see a life sullied with all of the grime of your actual sins. But he sees the perfect innocence of Christ who lived and died for you. And that's what the coming Lord's days are going to explain to us. But it all began here. The marvelous miracle. Marvelously accomplished. The miracle. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let that word go with you today as a marvelous comfort. Amen. We thank the Heavenly Father for the incarnation of Christ, the virgin conception and birth. Salvation is of the Lord, and in that truth we rest and we rejoice. Press this word upon our hearts. That our pondering of this marvelous miracle this morning may send us forth into this day and the week ahead with a marvelous comfort in our hearts. Amen.